The following message is presented by Fellowship Bible Church from its weekly pulpit ministry. We offer an expositional study through entire books of the Bible, one verse, paragraph, or chapter at a time. We pray that you'll be blessed by listening in. Thanks for visiting. Welcome. Glad that you're here. Come on in. Good to see you all. Let's take our Bibles and turn, please, to Deuteronomy 31. Deuteronomy 31, please. Then Moses went and spoke these words to all Israel, and he said to them, I am 120 years old today. I can no longer go out and come in. Also the Lord has said to me, You shall not cross over this Jordan. The Lord your God Himself crosses over before you. He will destroy these nations from before you, and you shall dispossess them. Joshua himself crosses over before you, just as the Lord has said. And the Lord will do to them as He did to Sihon and Og, the kings of the Amorites and their land, when He destroyed them. The Lord will give them over to you, that you may do to them according to every commandment which I have commanded you. Be strong and of good courage. Do not fear nor be afraid of them, for the Lord your God, He is the one who goes with you. He will not leave you nor forsake you. Then Moses called Joshua and said to him in the sight of all Israel, Be strong and of good courage, for you must go with this people to the land which the Lord has sworn to their fathers to give them, and you shall cause them to inherit it. And the Lord, He is the one who goes before you. He will be with you. He will not leave you nor forsake you. Do not fear nor be dismayed. So Moses wrote this law and delivered it to the priests, the sons of Levi, who bore the ark of the covenant of the Lord and to all the elders of Israel. And Moses commanded them, saying, At the end of every seven years, at the appointed time in the year of release, at the Feast of Tabernacles, when all Israel comes to appear before the Lord your God in the place which He chooses, you shall read this law before all Israel in their hearing. Gather the people together, men and women and little ones, and the stranger who is within your gates, that they may hear and that they may learn to fear the Lord your God and carefully observe all the words of this law, and that their children who have not known it may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God as long as you live in the land which you cross the Jordan to possess. Can I just pause there and ask you to think what your life would be like if you only heard the Word of God read once every seven years. Imagine that you were a family with a young child that was born just after the seven-year reading of the Word of God and that child went with you to Jerusalem the first time when he or she was seven years old and then heard the Word again at age 14. That's it. Unless you talked to them while you sat down and while you rose up and when you walk by the way and when you lie down. and You have to teach your kids God's Word. And so you had to know it. You couldn't just carry back from Jerusalem a copy from the Jerusalem Bible bookstore at that time. But boy, what a privilege we have. Isn't it true? We can read it and should every day have some connection to God's Word. I just can't imagine. Seven years and not being able to write out a whole copy of the law and have it with you. Amazing. Well, how privileged we are. Verse 14, Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, the days approach when you must die. Call Joshua and present yourselves in the tabernacle of meeting that I may inaugurate him. 
So Moses and Joshua went and presented themselves in the tabernacle of meeting. Now the Lord appeared at the tabernacle in a pillar of cloud, and the pillar of cloud stood above the door of the tabernacle. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, you will rest with your fathers, and this people will rise and play the harlot with the gods of the foreigners of the land where they go to be among them. And they will forsake me and break my covenant which I have made with them. By the way, that comment that I made earlier necessitated that the priests had to have a ministry itinerantly moving about the nation of Israel to teach them the Word. And they should have done so in light of this verse 16. And said, we have to do everything we can preventative, preventatively to make sure that the people don't depart from the law of God. Because, verse 17 says, Then my anger shall be aroused against them in that day, and I will forsake them. And I will hide my face from them, and they shall be devoured, and many evils and troubles shall befall them, so that they will say in that day, Have not these evils come upon us, because our God is not among us? And I will surely hide my face in that day, because of all the evil which they have done, and that they have turned to other gods. Now therefore, write down this song for yourselves, and teach it to the children of Israel." Put it in their mouths that this song may be a witness for me against the children of Israel. When I have brought them to the land flowing with milk and honey, of which I swore to their fathers that they have eaten and filled themselves and grown fat, then they will turn to other gods and serve them and they will provoke me and break my covenant. Then it shall be, when many evils and troubles have come upon them, that this song will testify against them as a witness. For it will not be forgotten in the mouths of their descendants. For I know the inclination of their behavior today, even before I have brought them to the land of which I swore to give them. God already knows the inclination of your hearts, just like He did of the nation of Israel. Therefore Moses wrote this song the same day and taught it to the children of Israel. Then he inaugurated Joshua the son of Nun and said, Be strong and of good courage, for you shall bring the children of Israel into the land which I swore to them, and I will be with you. So it was when Moses had completed the writing the words, I'm sorry, when he had completed writing the words of this book of, of this law in a book, when they were finished, that Moses commanded the Levites who bore the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, saying, Take this book of the law and put it beside the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God, that it may be there as a witness against you. For I know your rebellion and your stiff neck. If today, while I am yet alive with you, you have been rebellious against the Lord, then how much more after my death? Gather to me all the elders of your tribes and your officers that I may speak these words in their hearing and call heaven and earth to witness against them. For I know that after my death you will become utterly corrupt and turn aside from the way which I have commanded you. And evil will befall you in the latter days because you will do evil in the sight of the Lord to provoke Him to anger through the work of your hands." Then Moses spoke in the hearing of all the assembly of Israel the words of this song until they were ended. So next time, the song of Moses will be our portion to read and to, uh, to think about. But you know all that came to pass later on as it's recorded in the Old Testament. And so the uh, fulfillment of those words was before and in some sense kind of continues to this day. The people of Israel are out of their... Uh, kind of uh, element, as it were, and not fully in their homeland and under the blessing of God. Amen. All right, let's turn our Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, please. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse number 23 is where we begin this morning. 
there's a lot of ideas in this passage, but as I tried to boil it down, I think that the Apostle Paul is telling us that our conduct is guided by two key ideas. Those key ideas are the glory of God and the blessing or benefit of other people. The glory of God and the blessing or edification of others. And so we come to this passage and we remember where we've been in chapter 8. Things kind of started out a little bit mild, if you will. Um, the Apostle Paul talking about the issues of love and liberty and conscience and knowledge and uh, dealing with you know, possibly offending a brother because of our conduct and eating certain foods and so on. But things get a little heavier as we go along, talking about disqualification in chapter 9, idolatry and the bad example of the nation of Israel early in chapter 10 and the punishment that came because of that. And then the Apostle Paul telling us that we need to take heed so that we do not fall into temptation. These tests that God allows, the tests, the temptations rather, that Satan puts in front of people uh, are, um, can be very ser- severe and very serious. Now, nothing comes to us that is too much for us. We thank God for that. But at the same time, we have to recognize when Paul says about disqualification, he's not talking about uh, you know, some light matter that we can just kind of blow off and not worry about. This is a serious warning. And he comes to verse 14 and tells us flat out, not just us, but the Corinthians, look, you need to flee from idolatry. You can't be dabbling in those idol temples and messing around with the worship of those idols. You've got to get away from them. And he explains why with three, uh, three examples of fellowship. One, the Lord's table. Two, the uh, issue of Israel and, and the sacrifices of Israel. How they show fellowship with God. And then the sacrifices of, of the idol temples which show not sacrifice or, uh, fellowship with God, but fellowship with demons. Demons and uh, the idols are just, um, you know, whether they're statues of wood or stone or whatever. But the actual thing, if there is any reality behind a false religion, doesn't come from that man-made object. It comes from the worship of the demon that is behind and underneath and in that object, if you will. So Paul says to us, you got to make a decision. You have to decide, are you going to follow the old paths, the old, uh, the old idolatry, the old ways of your life, or are you going to follow a new way? Make the choice. You can't have one foot over here and one foot over here lest you be destroyed, basically. Lest you be disqualified. Now, he comes back to, in verse 23, to kind of wrap everything up. We've been dealing with three chapters, 8, 9, and 10 now, and we have this kind of feeling that, now what do I do? I mean, if I'm in Corinth, I say, Paul, you know, you've told me all this stuff and you've told me about liberties and rights and how you withhold yourself from those and everything. But what do I do about the meat? I mean, I just want to go to the store and buy meat. What do I do? I want to, you know, should I go to the temple or not? And so the Apostle Paul takes all that he said about the principles of conscience and knowledge and rights and disqualification and demons and idols and 
restricting liberty and rights for the sake of the gospel. He's going to take all that and he's going to use real life examples to help the Corinthians navigate some of the specifics that they have. And we don't have the same specifics they have, but we have a whole lot of specifics, don't we? We have, you know, uh, beverages. We have what kind of food should we eat? How should we vote? We have all kinds of things that you have to, you know, turn your brain on and, and apply Scripture. And so he's going to help us with this particular kind of situation. The practices that he explains are applicable to different situations across all times, all cultures, all Christians. In other words, they're timeless, uh, super, super cultural kinds of things, not just in first century Corinth, but in our own day today. So these truths help us to decide about matters which may be doubtful or disputed or debated, um, whether food or beverage or entertainment or ways of living or all kinds of activities. These, these will be covered in some way in verses 23 through 33. And so he gives us what turns out to be, as I've counted them, seven principles for how to decide or how to function in our society, how to decide about certain things in life. And so we just really jump right into the principles that are going to help us to decide. Because you, you know, you've run into this before. What should I do? How should I decide? You know, what's God's will? Well, God doesn't spell it out and, you know, with, a, with a, an airplane in the clouds, you know, to see, uh, or the sky, uh, to see what the message is from heaven. He doesn't give you an audible voice. He doesn't tell you, you know, you should uh, go to this college, marry this person, choose this job, move to this city, blah, blah, blah. You have to figure that stuff out yourself and use wisdom and scriptural revelation to help guide you to do that. So, But we have principles here. Number one, verse 23. He says to us, emphasize edification. Emphasize edification. Look at 23. All things are lawful for me. Now, I'd like to put those in double quotes if I could, okay? But not all things are helpful. That last part is Paul's response. Here's what he's doing. He's saying... You guys are saying all things are lawful for me, but, what does he respond? Not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, you say, but not all things edify. And so his emphasis is, forget this all things are lawful for me mantra or slogan that you have. You need to Change your thinking. Remember, we saw this before, if it sounds familiar. We saw it in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 12. And there, Paul, first part of chapter 6, you remember, deals with uh, uh, lawsuits. But then he transitions around about verse 12 and he starts talking about immorality. And he says to the people, you know, look, you're using this slogan as an excuse for sin. Now, I'll just say for full disclosure purposes, not every Bible teacher agrees with this interpretation. There are some who say, yeah, Paul is saying all things are lawful, and that's, it's, a, it's a kind of an okay statement, but with the caveat that sinful things aren't lawful. I'm suggesting that it's actually an excuse on the part of the Corinthians. They're saying, look, all things are lawful for me, almost like 
we're allowed to live a licentious life or do things that maybe are a little bit on the edge, but if it's of trouble, God will forgive us. Grace can, what? Abound. That was what Paul was charged with teaching, falsely charged with teaching. His, his teaching was not, you know, sin more that grace may abound. His teaching was grace has abounded and teaches us to live godly in Christ Jesus. Romans 6, Titus chapter 1, 2, and 3, in fact. Um, so Paul's very clear that God is, is, uh, working with us to produce a people that are zealous of good works and holiness, not that are looking for excuses to sin. And so it appears to me that the Corinthians were shoehorning a lot of activities into the all things are lawful category in their mind so that they could feel better about doing those things. Isn't that a funny thing? If we, if we render uh, our thoughts about something as different, we kind of convince ourselves that something is okay. That's called self-deception, by the way. I still want to preach a message on that. But by changing how you think about something does not make it right if it's inherently wrong. I mean, you can call a thorn a rose, but it's still a thorn. Okay. Just like in chapter 6, we have a twofold repetition here. All things are lawful, not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things are edifying. The, the apostle is undercutting their thinking here. And he's elevating them to a higher set of principles. It's almost, as I read this, is like he's saying, stop thinking like this. What can I get away with? Don't think like that. Rather than thinking, what can I get away with? You should be thinking, what should I aim for? You see the total difference in that. What should I aim for? I should aim for the glory of God. I should aim for helping others. I should aim for holiness in my life. Paul is clear that their slogan is not the appropriate way to live. You do not have a right to do just anything or say anything is permissible because it's just simply not true. All things are lawful is a false statement. And we say, well, we're not under the law, we're not legalistic. Yeah, I agree. We do not believe in the keeping of law for the obtaining of grace. But once grace has been granted, then we believe that there are expectations that God lays upon us. And we're not afraid to say that when we get saved, we ought to obey God. We ought to obey God. And in fact, it's not onerous to obey Him. And we know why, because He's given us these commands and warnings and prohibitions for our protection and for our good. So we ought to be thankful, not grudging, okay, I've got to obey. No, God knows the best. You know, Very much, very, very clearly He knows the best. So the emphasis then must be on edification, building up that last word in the verse in my translation, but not all things edify, points to Paul's emphasis here. The word of building or edification is, it means to increase one's capability to live a godly life. It, it's the ability to live properly in the Christian life. And they say growing ability. This word uh, building is, in its most plain and material usage, refers to constructing an, an edifice. Edifice, a building. Uh, like. Uh, building a house. You remember the guy that was foolish built on the sand? The guy that was wise built 
on the rock, that's the same word. The, the word oikodemeo, to build. Or somebody, Jesus talked about building a tower. Who of you builds a tower first without sitting down to you know, write the plans and figure the bill of materials and how much it's going to cost and all that? Obviously, nobody does that. You have to figure it out. Uh, one guy said, I'm going to tear down my barns and build bigger ones. Jesus said, tear down this temple and in three days I will raise it up again. And The Pharisees were incredulous. They said, what do you mean? It's been 46 years that this temple has taken to build and you're going to do it in three days? Jesus said in Matthew 23 in criticizing the Jewish leaders, He said, you've built the tombs of the prophets, giving witness that you are offspring of those stiff-necked people who killed the prophets. Um, one guy was uh, reputed, uh, had a good reputation among the Jews because he built a synagogue. Jesus was in uh, Nazareth in Luke 4, I believe it is. And it says that they were upset at him and were going to thrust him out of the city and, and over the cliff on, on the hill on which their city was built. So the idea of edification comes from the literal meaning of building something. But it passes out of the material realm into the spiritual realm when it refers to, for example, the growth of the church. You remember what Jesus said in Matthew 16:18, "I will build my church." And what? Death itself will not be able to defeat the church. The gates of Hades will not prevail against it, or the, the building of a spiritual house. You are built, being built up as a spiritual house, a, a bunch of priests a believer priests that are a holy dwelling place for God. Or Paul said in Romans 15, I'm not building on another man's foundation. What he meant there was, I'm going to new ground where the gospel has never been preached. I'm not standing on the shoulders of the giants that came before me. I'm plowing the ground the first time. I'm clearing the forest and, and putting in the, the seed. And that was a wonderful truth. Or the apostle accused Peter Remember in Galatians chapter 2, he said to Peter, why are you building again that which you tore down? The law, he said, we're done with that. But now you've gone back to worshiping or, or you know, kind of not eating with the Gentiles, worshiping only with Jews and so on. So there's the idea of building. The word building or edification can also refer to internal things. Acts 20, Paul talking to the Ephesian elders, he says, He's leaving. He's not going to see them again. And he commends them to the Word of God's grace which is able to what? Build them up. See how it's like the material construction project, but it's a spiritual project. It's inside the life of the believer. Or in Acts chapter 9, after Paul, uh, Saul Paul was, was converted, the Bible tells us that the churches had rest throughout all of Galilee and Judea and they were built up in the faith. And lest we think that speaks of numbers, it doesn't speak of numbers because it talks about them being built up and the Lord increased their numbers daily. So the building up of the church is not merely a numerical thing. The building up of the church is maturity. It's what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, that our job is to concern ourselves with edifying one another so that we would be built up into the measure of a mature man. 
we would be spiritually mature and strong and not blown about by every wind of doctrine that comes along. God has designed the church to build one another up. Let me read to you. Don't have to turn there. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, because I'm going through these quickly. It says, Therefore, comfort each other and edify one another, just as you also are doing. In other words, keep building each other up. Don't ever stop. We are built up when, the, when high quality stuff is used in our lives. Spiritual stuff I'm talking about. Not two by fours and drywall. But high quality building products are used for our growth. The Word and church and prayer and worship and instruction and evangelism. All of those are building products that build up the church and edify the church. So it's not... What can I get away with? It's what do I aim for? What do I aim for? I aim for edification. Love always seeks to edify. Remember 1 Corinthians 8.1? Now concerning things offered to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge puffs up. But love builds up. Edifies. It builds up. Okay, So love always seeks to do that. Edification is not focused on self. Although, I appreciate being edified. And that's something that God does with other people and other ministries and so on and builds up me and, and you as well. We build each other up. But edification doesn't focus on me. If it does, it runs amok very quickly. Let me give you a couple examples. 1 Corinthians 14.4 He who speaks in a tongue edifies himself. Edifies himself. That is, he's building himself up, puffing himself up. Or 1 Corinthians 8.10, If anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will not the conscience of him who is weak be emboldened? That's an interesting translation. Will it not be edified to... Sin against Christ. In other words, will it not be edified to eat those things offered to idols and thus break it through his conscience? So there's where the word emboldened is built, is built up. It's not a good building. It's a bad building that's going on there. In fact, what happens if you swap the first two letters of edification? Deification. And that's what self-edification is. If you're all focused about yourself, You're making yourself a god. And you become defiled and deified and the idolatrous focus of your existence becomes your own self. You don't want to deify. You want to edify. Alright, verse 24. Go back to 1 Corinthians 10. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 24. Let no one seek his own. Here we have the second principle of how to conduct ourselves in the matter of debated or questionable things or things we're confused about. Let no one seek his own, but each one the other's well-being. So edification doesn't focus on ourselves, but on others. To seek your own glory is no glory at all. In fact, that's what Proverbs 25-27 says. To, to seek your own glory is, is no glory at all. Love does not seek its own. Remember 1 Corinthians 13.5, love is patient, kind. It doesn't seek its own. It's outward 
in its focus. Or like Paul says in Philippians 2, verse 3, we ought not to be doing anything out of selfish ambition or vain deceit. We ought to be like Timothy. Remember Timothy? Paul said, I'm sending you Timothy because I have no one else like-minded. Everybody else is out there seeking their own things, but Timothy is seeking the things of God and seeking the things of others. So, focusing on others in this matter of edification. So, suppose that you do a better job in your marriage of seeking blessing and benefit for your spouse instead of yourself. What do you suppose will happen in your marriage if that's the case? If you seek the well-being of your church and the church is filled with people wanting to increase the well-being of each other and of outsiders, what do you think will happen in that church? As opposed to if you come to church saying, what am I going to get out of this? What's the pastor going to tell me? I might not tell you anything. Or I might tell you something and it's just going to go because you're not paying attention if you're focused on yourself. How can I serve others in this church? And you'll notice that by giving yourself away, you yourself will be edified and built up, not as a direct consequence, but as an indirect consequence. And by giving and by loving and by serving and by pointing out to others, you'll find that you yourself are blessed. Why? It's more blessed to give than it is to receive. And so... If you're in your marriage, you're giving. If in your church, you're giving. If in your relationships with others, your, your, out, your outward focus is upon them. You're trying to seek their well-being. What can I do to help them, truly help them? Not just, not just like be a nice person, you know, but really help them along the way of the faith. Um, getting your focus off of yourself. But if you focus on your own wants at home or what I need from this, from this marriage or what the church owes me or what am I going to get out of this? If you focus on your own hurts and your own peeves and, and, and with your spouse or with the church, what's going to happen then? Well, James 4 tells us. Wars and fightings that come from your, your selfish desires that war in your members. That's all. It's very simple. Whenever there's strife, you know where it's coming from. The Bible tells you. You don't have to think... You know, try to self-deceive again and say, well, that, that comes from my holiness. No, strife doesn't do that. It doesn't come from that. So, edify, focus on others. Verse 25 through 27 is the next principle. The third principle on how to decide what to do with kind of debatable issues or difficult issues, things you're not sure about. Paul teaches them, and here's where the specifics come in their situation. Make judicious use of your liberty. Judicious use. That means using good judgment or common sense. You know, don't do crazy things with your liberty. Uh, do not do something, for example, that would cause a new believer to stumble into sin. Verse 25, let's read. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market, asking no question for conscience sake. For the earth is the Lord's and all its fullness. If any of those who do not believe invites you to dinner and you desire to go, eat whatever is set before you, asking no question for conscience' sake. You've had this circumstance before in your life, haven't you? And you might have even asked somebody or asked me or another pastor, Should I, I've been invited to this 
wedding or something? Should I go? Uh, you know, this thing that's happening in my life, what should I do about it? Paul's telling them, in this case, with regard to two circumstances, the, the meat purchased in the market or if you're invited to an unbeliever's home, what, how do you handle that? So, how do you handle it? Well, he says, eat whatever is sold in the meat market, asking no questions for conscience sake. And then he gives the reason why. So, whatever you suppose the liberty to allow, that whatever that is, it cannot be a sin. Paul's helped us to understand in this context that meat offered to an, to a, an idol and then sold in the meat market can be eaten by a Christian without violation of the conscience. If your conscience is properly informed. In fact, he says, don't ask questions about it. Just buy it and cook it and consume it. Uh, you know, if you go around asking too much, you're going to undoubtedly find out information that could bother you or someone else's conscience, right? You know, the animal was offered to an idol in their case. Uh, you know, the butcher is not a Christian. Can I eat the meat then if he's not a Christian guy that cut the meat? You know, the animal was owned by a pagan idolater. Uh-oh. Am I associated with paganism if I eat that steak? You know, the money that you, you pay us to buy the food will not be used for Christian purposes. Oh, maybe I shouldn't buy from them. Ah, there's just too many things. You'd drive yourself crazy trying to, to go that way. You, you know, being weirded out by any of this is unnecessary because of the freedom that we have in Christ. One way I like to think about this is you take what is available in the world and you you make a redeemed use out of it. Make a redeemed use out of it. For example, right now, 25 seconds from when I say this, these words are going to be broadcast out on YouTube for anybody else who's watching on there, who chooses to, to sign in and look at our, our live stream. Is everything on YouTube good? No. But I'm using an infrastructure that's been developed by largely unbelieving people for a pursuit of billions of dollars. I'm using that infrastructure, we are, so that we can get the Gospel out to people in a convenient manner. Um, I don't believe there's anything wrong with that. Although somebody might say, well, my conscience is stricken because there's bad content on YouTube and all of that. You have to take what the world gives you and use it for redemptive purposes. Okay, you can use technology, for example. Of course, you would expect me to say something like this because I'm kind of, a, in a way, a technophile uh, coming out of the training that I had and all. But you have to make use of it. You make, you make Christian use of medicine, technology, science, transportation, uh, all the goods and services that can be available. You make use of those so that... You know, like, do I have to hire people to work on the church who are Christian people. I don't. I hire people who are the best at the particular job that they're doing. If I can hire believers that are very good, that's great. We just had a consultation this week with a couple guys that I've gotten to know by on a first-name basis. Delightful fellows, not Christians. You can tell by their language and 
the cigarette hanging out of the mouth and all of that sort of thing. But you know what? I have an opportunity with those guys. And I, I, I'm grateful for it, to be a good influence on them. You know, when, when they let uh, one of the four-letter words fly, and then they realize, oops, I say, you know, this is a church. I just give it to them, you know. And, uh, you know, kind of remind them uh, a, little, a little sanctification uh, process there. This, this is not the Navy. That is correct. That's right. We don't swear like sailors around here. So we make a redeemed use of the things of the world. We can't ask all these questions or we would just drive ourselves crazy. Um, but why, why is all of this possible? Verse 26 tells us, For the earth is the Lord's and all its fullness. Where does all this stuff come from? Where, where does the, the blessing of roofing contractors come from? Where does meat come from? Where does the earth belongs to the Lord and the fullness of it? That's right. On a thousand hills, they all belong to God. And you might try this sometime at your own table. Well, turn to Psalm 24. This is actually used by some Jewish people in prayer at their table. And I would encourage you to think about this as well. I've often used this in prayer at our table, even in church potlucks or Wednesday night dinners that we've had in the past. Psalm 24. A Psalm of David. The earth is the Lord's and all its fullness. The world and all those who dwell therein, that is, all of its inhabitants, for He has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the waters. When you go home and, and sit down here at not at noon because I'm preaching too long, but okay, twelve thirty, one o'clock, and uh, you sit down and there's food before you. You know where that food came from? God, God, and you can sit there at your table and and and. Pray with your family and say, Lord, thank you for the food you've given us today because it comes out of the bounty of your fullness. You have given it to us out of that abundance. We know that we don't deserve it. We know that you don't have to. I mean, a different circumstances, he maybe doesn't give us today's meal if something happens in the, in the country or there's some catastrophe that occurs and we don't have food. Everything belongs to God. And that portion that he shared with us is something we certainly can enjoy and, and be nourished and, and health, uh, given health and soundness by. Now, what about the other situation? So, you can go and eat the meat. You don't have to ask all kinds of questions about it and all that sort of thing. What about going to an unbeliever's home? An unbeliever's home. Well, Paul says, if any of those who do not believe invite you to a dinner... And you want to go. See, there's a factor involved that says, you, you know, you have to think, okay, is this suitable for me to go? Is it appropriate for me to go? Is it fit into my schedule? Is it a good example for my kids? I mean, you can throw all kinds of things in there and think. But yeah, I'd like to go. I think that'd be an all right opportunity. Uh, I think it can work out and uh, won't be, you know, compromising or anything like that. If you want to, go. It's not required by God that you go, but it's an option if you so desire. Fitting that in with you know, all of your other principles of godliness and your walk with the, with the Lord. When you attend, he says, eat the food. And don't ask if it was offered to an idol or not. It doesn't matter. Use that opportunity 
as they chance to minister for the sake of the gospel. Okay, But, look at verse 28. This brings us to our fourth principle. We're not going to get through all these, I see, but we'll be here at four at least. Um, we're not only focusing on edification, number one. Number two, we're focused on others. Three, we're making judicious use of our liberty. But number four, finally for this morning, we're caring for the consciences of others. But if anyone says to you, this was offered to idols, do not eat it. For the sake of the one who told you and for conscience sake, for the earth is the Lord's in all its fullness. Conscience, I say. Whose conscience? Yours? No, not yours. Not your own, but that of the other. For why is my liberty judged by another man's conscience? But if I partake with thanks, why am I evil spoken of for the food over which I give thanks? In other words, why would you give thanks for the meal and then do something that would harm another brother in eating it? You can't give thanks to God for that. You know, you know, dear God, thank you for this nice idle steak that I'm going to eat. And my brother over here is is a new believer and he can't take it. But I'm going to eat it anyway. Thank you. Amen. You know, fork and knife. Dig in. You just aren't thinking. You're not thinking. You're damaging the conscience of the other brother. 1 Corinthians 8 told us that. But beyond that, you have the, the host. Well, then you've got to think, okay, if I don't eat this, Oh, what's the host going to think? He made all this nice food and I'm not going to eat it. So I offend the brother here that's next to me or I offend the host or, or something. And So you've got to navigate all this. The issue comes up when they actually say this was offered to idols. What are they doing? You know, Your little antenna goes up and say, test, test, test. What am I going to do with this now? They are, they are in effect putting you to the test. And you say, oh, it was offered to idols. Well, then, no thanks. Because I'm a Christian and I'm not associated with idols. And I have to be careful that I don't give a bad example to other people. I'm sure you'll understand, Mr. or Mrs. Host. Right? Yeah, that should. And hopefully in our pluralistic society today, that should be all right. Because they want to have their freedom to do whatever they want, right? So we ought to be able to, as Christians, do what we think is appropriate. Or are we too timid? to demand things like I'm going to worship on Sunday you know and stuff like that or does does everyone else get the privilege but Christians don't because we're the off scouring of the world you know we're the lowest on the totem pole I don't think so I think we need to stand up for what is right but in any case are you going to show yourself to purely belong to Christ or are you going to defile yourself with a portion of the king's food like Daniel was concerned about? Are you going to risk offending the host by not eating their food or offend a brother by, by, by encouraging him into what would be idolatry in his mind, in his conscience? Um, and so Paul uses the same justification that he did in the earlier verse. Remember, he said you can eat it because it's from the earth and the earth is the Lord's. But remember, the text also said that not only is the earth the Lord's in all its fullness, but all those who dwell therein. The people too. You have to care for the people of God's earth as well. 
all of its inhabitants and not just run roughshod over them because you want to eat your steak in this context. So the issue of conscience has to do with the other believer, the weak conscience believer, not with your own because you know, you've already determined there's no problem for me. Um, I can do this. Uh, it, it's you know my, it's not my liberty. It's or it is it is it is my liberty, but it's not that I have to demand that I can use my liberty. I can't give thanks for something that will cause another brother to stumble. And and you can't say you know don't judge my liberty, bro. You can't do that because your liberty can be evaluated based on the conscience of another person. See, your conscience would not be, or your condemnation rather, is not based on violating your own conscience in this case. Your condemnation comes because you misused your liberty and damaged another brother in his life. You see that? So, something that could be okay to do in one context, not okay to do in another context. And you have to use these principles to help you decide when and where and how those those are. So it's not just so cut and dried as saying, yeah, go ahead and always eat the meat. Paul's telling us this. Sometimes it is, sometimes it isn't. Okay? So you want to do things that care for the conscience of others, emphasize edification, focus on, on the other people, and make judicious use of your liberties. We'll pick up the rest next time, Lord willing, starting in verse 31 through 11.1. But until then, hold on to these notes. Maybe stick them in your Bible and bring them back the next time. Okay? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank You for the principles of liberty, the principles of helping others to grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ. And as we'll see, the principles of honoring God and, and all of that, not offending unnecessarily other people as we look at the rest of this passage. Thank You for Your kindness in giving us these instructions, these guides, these warnings. Help us to put them into practice. God, I pray for each one of us that You'll work in us, whatever our particular circumstances are that might be relevant for this. In Jesus' name, Amen.